You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray together. Oh God in heaven, we draw near to you through Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would teach us to honor your word, that your law would norm our lives, and we pray that you would direct us to Christ and we would ever be coming to him for forgiveness. That this morning's sermon would be an encouragement to your people, that it would strengthen us, and that it would bring forth more fruits of obedience. Oh God, in heaven, save sinners and backsliders, restore them, we pray. Anoint the hearing and preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. So a word of exhortation to you as I've given to you as I began um, preaching through these commandments is that the Ten Commandments are very searching. So if you find your heart convicted or you feel a sense of, of guilt or shame when those commandments search your heart, what that should prompt you to do is run to Jesus Christ. For he is your only hope. And he is the only way to rid yourself of that guilt and shame. And he will remove it from you if you go to him by faith. So don't rest there under the burden of your sin as these commandments search your hearts. And beyond that, 
walk away from the commandments, not with a sense of guilt or shame, but the sense of gratitude for the God who has forgiven you for your sins, and with an earnest resolve to see to it that these do become a rule of life for you, so that you learn how to pattern your life after God's design, which is revealed in these commandments. The first commandment is the flagship of the commandments. If the entire Ten Commandments of all the Ten Commandments were a naval fleet, the first commandment would be the flagship, and all the other commandments would come in the wake of it. Because the first commandment speaks to our loyalty about God, and so you can't violate a commandment, any of them, without violating the first commandment. The first commandment tells us who to worship. Now we get to the second commandment, which we looked at last week and we'll look again at today. And this tells us how to worship. So we've looked at who to worship in the first commandment, and the second commandment tells us how to worship. And this second commandment that we're looking at today in verses 4, 5, and 6 of Exodus chapter 20 is a commandment that is very severe in its warnings and very encouraging in its promises. I read this quote last week, I'll read it again today, but William S. Plumer, the 19th century Southern Presbyterian pastor, said of the second commandment, God never gave a command more solemn in its terms or in the sanction connected with it. The words in which it is delivered seem to have been chosen for the purpose of striking terror into the hearts of the rebellious and of giving the highest encouragement the obedience. This is a most solemn of commandments with most terrifying of warnings to the disobedient and a most sweet commandment with the most encouragements of promises given to the obedient. And so this is a word of warning that strikes terror into your hearts if you're disobedient and it is a word of encouragement that is sweetness to you if you find yourself living by faith. What we find in this second commandment is that the decisions that you make right now in your life about the worship of God will have implications 150 years from now. Your view and understanding and practice of worship has implications for people you don't even know and will never meet until you get to heaven. It will have implications for your children, for your children's children, and for your children's, 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 children. You sit there and you say, well, yeah, I don't have any kids. Well, maybe this isn't for me. No, this has implications for the future of the gospel. Across the face of the earth. The true worship of God is something that will have effects positively for generations from now and false worship will have detrimental implications generations from now. This is embedded in the promises and the warnings associated with this commandment. So pay attention because the decisions that you make by faith with regards to worship are the most serious of decisions because they have implications for your children. They have implications for your children's children. They have implications for your children's children's children. The second commandment. All of life actually flows from the presence of God. 
the blessing of God. And there is no place and time where God is more manifestly present than the gathered worship of his people. So just as the water flowed out of Ezekiel's temple to cover the face of the earth, and just as the rivers flowed out of Eden to cover all the major regions of the world, so life flows out of the true worship of God. True life, abundant life, eternal life. To touch all the corners of the earth. Because God is manifestly present in the praises of his people. And where God is, there is life. And where God is, there is blessing. And so from the praises of his people flow life and promise and goodness to all peoples. I'll give you three points this morning. My first is a command. And I'm simply summarizing the second commandment with my first point, which is, you should be jealous for the right worship of God. And then my point two and point three are reasons. I'll spend a little bit of time on point one and then a lot of time on point two and three. My first point is, you should be jealous for the proper worship of God. And then my second point will be, because God is jealous for his own worship. And my third point will be, because your worship has ramifications for your children and their children. You should be jealous for the right worship of God because God is jealous for his own worship and because your worship has ramifications for your children and their children. Point one. Be jealous for the worship of God. You should be jealous for the worship of God. The right worship of God. This basically sums up the commandment. Now the commandment is stated in the negative. It's a prohibition. You should not make for yourself a carved image, etc. But the commandment, you should not make for yourself a carved image, when flipped and summarized in the positive, becomes, as Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 4, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Or as otherwise stated, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your mind, with all your strength. It's all the same thing. Because true worship without true love is not worship. And where there is a love of God, there will be worship. So to love God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength, is to worship God properly. Where you do not have love, your worship is just a clanging gong, or a noisy symbol. And the reasoning in this commandment to worship God the reasoning in the commandment should make us jealous to protect right worship and promote it because the commandment tells us that God is a jealous God and, he tell, and it tells us that worship affects our children. There's your two reasons. But we're still on the first point. And what I'm telling you is the word jealous in the first point stems from the reasons for the commandment. It's not enough for me just to say, you shall worship God properly. It's actually you shall be jealous for the proper worship of God. You look at those two reasons that I'll get into, but that ought to be enough to motivate you. We should be jealous for the proper worship of God. Now, some might wonder if jealousy is a good thing. You probably grew up in a home where your brother told you not to be jealous of others. And if she did, she was wise. She tried to instill wisdom in you. But often when people say jealousy, what they mean is they mean envious or covetousness. 
So it's right, you shouldn't be envious of other people, you shouldn't be covetous of other people, as we'll find in the 10th commandment. But when jealousy is applied properly, it is a good thing. Often when we use the word jealousy, however, we're referring to envy or covetousness. But to be jealous is to simply try to guard and protect what rightfully belongs to somebody else, are you. So for example, a man will be jealous for the love of his wife, and he won't want to share that love with another woman. Or a woman will be jealous for the love of her husband, and she wouldn't want him to show affection towards another woman like he does towards her. And so the idea of jealousy is a good concept, and as, as we get further into the commandments, as you, as you look at the, um, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, we'll find that we should be jealous to protect our own property. Or as you get to the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery, we'll find that you should be jealous to protect your marriage, and protect marriage as a concept. Or, or the commandment, you shall not murder, you should be jealous to protect your own life and the life of other people. It's not just enough to not believe in murder. You actually have to be jealous for human life. Human life should be protected with zeal. And so when I'm giving you this first point and I'm saying be jealous for the right worship of God, it's more than just say I want to practice the right worship of God, the right worship of God. There ought to be a militant jealousy associated with protecting it and upholding it. Militant. Jealous. John L. McKay, the commentator, says, Whereas envy is a desire for what is not one's own, so mentioned, jealousy focuses on what one has a right to. And it is an intense preoccupation to take action to guard and keep inviolate a relationship. Jealousy, when used properly, is protecting what you have a right to. And God has a right to his own worship. And if we're jealous for the worship of God, we are jealous for the rights of God. God has a right to his own worship. The prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, speaks of his jealousy. He said in 1 Kings 19, verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So zealous, or so jealous, was Elijah for the proper worship of God, that he actually believed he was the only man alive in Israel that was wanting to worship God properly, and he was going to put his, his life down for it if he had to. You know, when... When we went through COVID, if you remember, there's a lot of people said this isn't your hill to die on. You shouldn't die on the hill that stands for the right worship of God. Whereas the second commandment, if read and interpreted properly, is this is the hill to be jealous for. That God is worshipped the way God has designed. We worship Him the way He wants. You don't come to God and say, I'm worshiping you my way. Right? There's a song that says, I did it my way, isn't there? 
That's the song they sing in hell. That's the worship services they have in hell. I did it my way. You come to God on his terms and you do it his way. And so if you want to sing one song, it's, I did it God's way. I want to do it God's way. I desire to do it God's way. God deserves it to be done God's way. So like Elijah was, we should be jealous for the proper worship of God. You should be. And I fear that there's a lot of people in the church that are rightly disgusted with the sins of our generation. Rightly. But are not marked by jealousy for true worship. But you ought to like the wholesomeness that comes with a Christian environment and that comes with a proper worship service and that comes with a Christian community. You ought, to, you ought to really appreciate that. But if you appreciate that and you're drawn to that, but you're not drawn to a jealous protection of right worship, I have serious concerns about your soul. Because it's the right worship of God that is driving everything. You move out that component, everything else falls apart, as we'll see. Everything has to be ordered around the right worship of God. Your whole life should be ordered around the right worship of God. I talked about that last week. Listen to my sermon. There's wrong worship, but there's right worship. You know, there's not many different types of worship. There's wrong and there's right. Right worship is sincere. Right worship is reverent. Right worship is humble. Right worship is intelligent. Right worship is orderly. Right worship... Worship is offered to God through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. Right worship entails the reading and preaching of Scripture. It entails prayers. It entails the ordinances. And it entails singing hymns and songs. That's right worship. And you ought to be jealous for it. Militantly passionate about it. Protecting it. Guarding it. Jealous for it. Right worship. And why should you be jealous for it? Well, I'll give you my first reason why you should be jealous for it. Visiting my outline now. My first reason why you should be jealous for it, point two, is because God is jealous for his own worship. He is. He protects and guards his worship intensely. If you look at verse 5 from Exodus chapter 20, what does it say? You should not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There's your first reason. That ought to be enough, by the way. But there's more reasons to come. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now notice he invokes his name here just like he did in the preamble. We went through that in verse 2 of Exodus 20. What is, how does he introduce himself? I am the Lord your God. Well, how does he introduce himself as the jealous God? I, the Lord your God. Revealing again in the second commandment his self-sufficiency. He is the being from all other beings derived their being. And not only does it reveal his self-sufficiency, it reveals his relational attachment to us by covenant. So that the self-sufficient being from whom all other beings derive their being is also relationally attached to us by covenant. And then he brings up that concept, not just in the preamble, but now he brings it up in the second commandment to add emphasis and weight and sober-mindedness to this commandment. This is serious, in other words. Invoking his own name into the idea. First commandment, he doesn't invoke his name. He invokes his name in the second commandment. And 
What is the jealousy of God? Because one of the reasons we should be jealous for right worship is because God is jealous for his own worship. Well, what is the jealousy of, of God? What does it mean? John Gill explained it like this. He said, jealousy is fierce and cruel. It breaks forth into great wrath and issues a dreadful scenes, oftentimes among men. Jealousy. You want to provoke a jealous husband to wrath. Look out. But if you want to provoke a jealous God to wrath, you really better look out. And you provoke a jealous God to wrath by not worshiping him or by worshiping him improperly. That's how you provoke a jealous God to wrath. And we see this wrath come through in Scripture, the jealousy of God in Scripture. I'll give you some examples here. So we see it come through. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8 speaks of the jealousy of God. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations to assemble. Kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. See, he says he's going to destroy the entire earth because of his jealousy. Jealousy provoked by false worship or improper worship. Beyond that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, some people say, well, that's just Old Testament. Come on now. Well, the same God in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. So don't ever think those silly thoughts. But the New Testament repeats it. Paul is preaching against, in 1 Corinthians 10, he's preaching against false worship in 1 Corinthians 10. And then he moves into 1 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13, and even 14, to talk about proper worship, how it ought to be ordered and structured. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, or verse 21, after condemning the practice of idolatry, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Why should you have proper worship? According to Paul, why should you abandon false worship? Because to embrace improper worship and to embrace idolatry, to worship God in a way that he has not commanded you, is to provoke the Lord to jealousy. In New Testament times. God's jealousy is most often in Scripture actually provoked by false worship. Joshua 24 verse 19, for example, says... You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And then he goes on in verse 19, or 20, he says, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you. So this whole idea of, could you, it's one thing to have somebody, a friend, turn on you. Have you ever had that? Sometimes you hear about someone's dog goes crazy and the dog turns on them. Balls them or something like that? Could you imagine having God turn on you? God will turn on you if you provoke him with improper worship. This is most serious. 
Ezekiel chapter 16, one more verse here, as I talk about the jealousy of God for his own worship, that's what I'm talking about. You should worship God rightly, and you should be jealous for his right worship because he is jealous for his right worship. As I look at one more verse that talks about that here before I move on. Ezekiel 16, verse 38 through 42, it compares the jealousy of God for his worship to the jealousy of a man for his wife. Heightens it though. So Ezekiel 16, verse 38 says, And I will judge you as women who commit adultery, and shed blood are judged, and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy, and I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more, so I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm, and I will no more be angry. He talks about this violent scene of judgment, and the judgment is not ended. The violence is not ended until God's jealousy is satisfied. You should worship God properly. No, you should be jealous for right worship. Why? Because God is jealous for his right worship. And, and when you're exposed to false worship, it should provoke something in your gut. It should provoke a negative reaction. There should be something in your gut that is repulsed by false worship. Provokes sentiments of disgust and even righteous indignation deep within your gut. Why? Because it provokes God. And it's stealing him of his honor. You drive by a mosque or you drive by a temple to a false god, you shouldn't be like, oh, isn't that wonderful? I'm so happy those people are gathering. No. You should drive by and you should think, this is terrible. This is public blasphemy against God. This is not wonderful. That's why people want to say, oh, we're, they want to generalize us. Oh, you're, you're, you're people of faith. I'm not a person of faith. I don't even know what that means. I'm a Christian. I worship God the Father through Jesus Christ. Don't put me on the same level with other religions. Don't put our worship on the same level with false worship. There is only one way to God, and that's through Christ. Enough of this, your people of faith nonsense. Generalize us all as if it's all the same thing. No! There's only one true God, and He is to be worshipped only the way He desires to be worshipped, and that is through Christ. So when you're exposed to false worship, it should be horrifying to you. And, and I think maybe even worse than that, being exposed to downgraded worship in the name of Christ. Which is what I think the overwhelming majority of churches are today. It's a downgrade of worship. 
might even be worse. Probably is. It should, it should be more repulsive. When people set up some type of circus in order to attract a crowd and call worship in the name of Christ. They take that which is holy and they throw it to pits and trample it. It's terrible. God is jealous for it. You know, you can only do that so long until you provoke his wrath. And then it comes and his wrath breaks people to the point where they are broken beyond repair. And there's no going back after that. We should be jealous for the true worship of God. Why? Because God is jealous for his worship. He will protect, he will guard, he will be militant against false worship. And he will protect and guard his worship. And what we're going to find as we go through the Ten Commandments is that your desire to guard, protect, be militant for, be jealous for the right worship of God, there's a direct correlation between that and to be, and, and to be jealous for protecting everything else that God gives you. If you learn how to protect the worship of God, that will flow into every other aspect of life. So that from this you get, you shall not murder. You want to protect human life. You shall not commit adultery. You want to protect marriage and especially your marriage. You shall not steal. You want to protect private property and especially your private property. All of a sudden this creates divisions that are good because it categorizes things. That's mine, that's not mine. That's God's, that's not God's. One is not like the other and it creates distinctions. And you ought to be jealous for the right worship of God because God is jealous for his own worship. But not only should you be jealous for the right worship of God because God is jealous for his own worship, you should be jealous for the right worship of God because your worship has ramifications for your children and their children. Point three. Your worship has ramifications for your children and their children. There's negative ramifications for false worship and there's positive ramifications for true worship. Let's look at the negatives first. The point is, is that because your worship, because your worship has ramifications for your children and their children, you should worship God rightly and be jealous for right worship. So there are enough children. Let's say that. Well, for the future, down the road, the future of the church, the future of the gospel, the future of the honor of God on earth. Your right worship has implications for that, and your negative worship has implications for that. Let's look at the negative. Look at what it says at the end of verse 5. God says, I am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What? How does he show his jealousy? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's a terrible threat. That should make you shudder. Because it's saying that the parents will witness the demise of their family tree. That false worship is avenged by God as the parents witness the demise of their family tree. You always, you typically live to see the third or fourth generation. Typical circumstances. You're the first generation. Your children are the second. Your grandchildren are the third. 
and your great-grandchildren are the fourth. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation means that there's implications negatively with your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren so that what this means is, is that you will live to see the apostasy of your family line. This is sobering. It's very serious. It's a threat that you could see the ruin of. And this isn't, don't get caught up with this charismatic stuff about bondage breaker and all this charismatic stuff wedded with therapy where you get these, you know, hocus pocus chants and prayers that are come out in books that sell a lot of books or make people a lot of money. That's not what this is talking about here. What this is talking about is that one generation sets the agenda for the next generation. You set the agenda for your children. This is typically how it works. Okay, it does not mean that God sends the children to hell for their parents' sins. It means that as you set the agenda for your children, your children learn from your habits and often take it to the next level. Very typically. That's a pattern that you see in Scripture, and that's and if you look around and you just observe the people that you know, that's a pattern that you'll see in their life, and that's a pattern that you'll see in society, which we'll talk about in a moment. But when parents fail to worship properly, the next generation often gets it worse. And this is exemplified in the Bible many times, but I'll look at one time, such time where it's exemplified, and that's in Judges chapter 2. After the generation of Joshua dies, where right worship was established, what happens after Joshua dies? In verse 10 of Judges 2, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there were another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. When one generation fails to be zealous for the true worship of God, families will splinter, churches will shudder, and nations will implode. But it takes a while to get there. That's the point. Third and fourth generation, typically. This isn't some bondage breaker stuff, therapy, wedded with charismania. Listen to that stuff. This is just simply how things work. The parents set the agenda for the children. And typically it's the father that sets the agenda for the house and the children. Typically it's the father. A strong father who fears the Lord and sin and demands the right worship of God and lovingly cares for and nurtures his family and children will set the tone in that family and it will, it will have implications for children's children's children that you will never meet and might even never even know your name. It would take me a while to think of the name of my great-grandfather. I don't even know the name of my great-great-grandfather. But what you do in this generation can have implications for further generations. Third and fourth generation, negative implications, negative ramifications. Why should you worship God properly? Because if you don't, there's negative ramifications. We are now three generations, by the way, removed from the 50s and 60s when the nation, our nation, Canada, turned its back on God to embrace all kinds of horrible things. We are now three to four generations removed from it. And now it's starting to play out and you're seeing the full flower of apostasy. 
why is everything going on that we see today? Well, there was a generation, as in the book of Judges, that forgot to pass on true jealousy for Christian worship to the next generation. So, so you go to the turn of the 20th century, in the year 1900, do you realize that 95% of non-Catholic Ontarians in the year 1900 went to an evangelical Protestant church on Sunday? 95%? I bet you if you go and you do a survey now, I bet you 95% of people in this population had never even been to a church. Never mind an evangelical Protestant one. What happened? It was in the book of Judges where there was a generation who failed to pass on jealous worship of God. They didn't guard the holy and the sacred. You know, in the 60s and 70s, the United Churches, you see them dotted all over the place in the downtown courts, were full. That's why they have those big buildings and those nice locations. And some of them are nice buildings. They were full. But now the United Church of Canada has become a real estate board. Why? Because in the 60s they made a conscious decision to embrace theological liberalism and abandon the worship of God. And then people still kept coming to church for a generation. But now they're empty. Let the United Church stand as a warning of what happens when the true worship of God is abandoned. Just look at that, and you'll see this passage play out in real time, three-dimensional, with real people. The movement to move evangelical churches towards being more culturally sensitive has produced biblically illiterate children who are Christian in name only and are basically the United Church of the 80s. There is a direct link, I think, between the secret churches and the secular education those children receive and a great falling away in apostasy. Your jealousy for true worship is linked to the well-being of your children in this passage and specifically is linked to the... Your, your lack of jealousy for true worship is linked to the detriment of your children. So if some of, some of you love our church's stance on government, I'm glad that you do, and morality, because the world is becoming less and less wholesome, more unwholesome. <coughs> but if you're not jealous for true worship, you're completely missing it. You're missing it. It's jealousy for true worship that is being called for here. This is what's lasting. And when that's removed, our worship is a clanging gong. It's, it's loveless ritual. That's all it becomes. False worship. False worship. You should be jealous for the worship of God because, why? Your worship has ramifications for your children and their children, specifically the negative, the third and fourth generation. You teach your children that it's not important to be zealous for worship, then they're going to take it to the next level. And then they'll take it to the next level. And then you have the full flower of apostasy while you're sitting there in your old age watching the whole family tree rot. And you see this, if you, if you observe families, you watch this play out. Haven't you seen that? You've seen it. With your own eyes. 
False worship has implications for the next generation. But look at the great promise that's associated with us. Your worship has ramifications for your children and their children, so that true worship has ran positive ramifications for a thousand generations, we're told. Look at what it says in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. We, don't, we haven't even reached a thousand generations. If you believe the earth is about as old as the Bible says it is, which is six, seven thousand years old. We're not even close to reaching a thousand generations. The point is, is that true worship endures forever while apostasy dies within the fourth generation. Okay? If you're investing in worship, in true worship, you are investing in something that lasts. Now, if you look at the kings of Israel, I did a study on this. I read through, what I did is I added up all the ages of the kings and I figured out how long they lasted and I put a diagram together. I said, okay, this was a good king, this was a bad king, this is how long it lasted. The good generations and the bad kings, so there's good kings and there's bad kings, so there's good generations and there's bad kings. But the bad kings, the apostasy, never lasted more than four generations. Then it's all, true worship is always restored for the fourth generation in Old Testament Israel. In fact, in fact, if you look at the last good king, who's Josiah, he reforms worship. The death of Josiah marks the beginning of final apostasy when Israel is taken into exile, Judah is taken into exile. And then after they're taken into exile by the Babylonians, they return to the land and they start true worship again. Between the death of Josiah and the return to the land, which means the reformation of worship to make true worship, there was only 90 years. That's all there was. By our standards, that's about three generations, four generations. There was only 90 years. In fact, if you look at the delivering of the Ten Commandments, and you trace Moses' genealogy back to when the Israelites went into Egypt and then were became slaves in Egypt, there's only four generations from them going into Egypt and Moses bringing forth the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Only four and others, a lot more years than our standards, but they lived longer back then. So if a man lived to be 200 years old and had a kid at 200, then that's one generation. But if you look at the genealogy, there's four generations. That's it. But what we're told here is that apostasy lasts three or four generations, but blessings last a thousand generations, and the blessing is associated with the true worship of God. The wrath only lasts four generations, but the blessing lasts thousands. What's that tell us? It tells us that God's mercy is greater than your sins. And beyond that, it tells us that what the wicked invest in will either be destroyed or given to the righteous within a few generations. What the wicked invest in will either be destroyed or given to the righteous within a few generations. What the righteous invest in will last forever. Look at Noah. He said, oh, I don't know. But look at Noah. What happened with Noah? He lived in an apostate age. The entire world was destroyed and then given to Noah. So what the apostate generation had was completely destroyed once you got the full flower of apostasy and the flood came 
destroyed the earth, was given to Noah. And so this is the pattern that you see in Scripture. With the wicked invest in will be destroyed in three to four generations, but with the righteous invest in will last forever. I mean, if you think about poor Adam and Eve when they had to deal with their sons, they had, they had family problems, didn't they? Cain killed Abel. Because, and why did Cain kill Abel? Because Cain was jealous, not in the good sense, he was envious that Abel was worshiping God properly. And then he killed Abel. You think Adam and Eve probably said, oh, it's over now. It's done. But then, like 6,000 years later, here we are gathered in this room with all these hundreds of people worshiping God, the same God that Abel was worshiping. It endures, and we still have the story to tell. True worship endures. And so if you're concerned about the future generation, if you're concerned about your children, this has been my thinking process of raising my family, the most important thing I can give them is to teach them to worship God properly. It's not academics, it's not athletics, it's not all the stuff that they want. It's to teach them true worship and a true way of life as a Christian. Because that's what endures. That's what lasts unto a thousand generations. And that's the priority that I hope they'll build on. The greatest thing that you can do for your children is to teach them to worship God properly. And then everything else falls into place. But the righteous invested will last forever. So what have I been talking about this morning? Got a few more applications here. You need to be jealous for the right worship of God. Why? Because God is jealous for his worship and because your worship has ramifications for your children and your children's children. You guys, some of you young guys, you think, I want to get married and find a wife well, and raise a family. The most important thing you can do right now is, is learn to be a good worshiper so this kind of permeates your home. That you young ladies, oh, I just hope I can find a husband one day. Well, you better be looking for a guy who's going to lead your family in worship. Don't just find any old husband who can help you have kids. Find him. That's the easy part. Find someone who will teach your family to worship and lead your family in worship. That's the important part. Is he a worshiper of God? Because that's what lasts. And so as you come to this, and some of you might feel convicted and you've raised your children maybe already and not in a worshipful environment or not in a worshipful church or not in a worshipful family or not in a worshipful school and, and now you're seeing this whole thing play out in front of your eyes. You're like, what do I do? How do I deal with this? No doubt there's a few thinking that. Well, you need to understand that the text tells us, it's as plain as day in the text, that the mercy is greater and lasts longer than the sin. The sin is the third and fourth generation, but the mercy lasts for a thousand generations. So what should you do? Well, you should invest in worship. Because if you can hear me preach, that means you still got breath in your lungs and you should be investing in worship. And then pray for God's mercy. 
on you and on your family. Your sin is great, but his mercy is greater. What did I tell you at the beginning of the sermon? At the beginning of every sermon I've done, once I got into the commandments, is when you feel the commandments start to search in your heart and you start to regret decisions that you've made, what do you do? You go to God for mercy. Because his mercy lasts a thousand generations. His mercy is greater than your sin. And so you should invest in worship because nothing lasts longer than true worship. By the way, this, this text, the warning in this text, does not go well for those churches that were compliant during COVID, does it? At all. It's terrible. They, we need to pray that they repent. You don't want to see that whole thing done away with. But I've, I've seen this, frankly, is that for the most part, the churches that I know that served properly during COVID, they've grown, they've flourished, they're healthy, they're alive. But the churches that didn't, they're fractured, they're splintered, they've dwindled. Right? I've met people that they don't know who I am. Sometimes I, I meet people who are other Christians or other pastors and they say, how did your church fare through COVID? You guys all right? One guy asked me, he said, did you guys need to take any of that government money? <laughs> no, we're, do we're doing okay. What, really? Yeah. Oh, you're that church. <laughs> but seriously, this is the way it is. True worship is lasting. It, is a, it brings blessing to other generations. You need to understand this. It, we, and, and by the way, we should, we should be hopefully optimistic about the future. The present social apostasy a national apostasy and church apostasy can not last. It will not. And if we are on the third and fourth generation, which I expect we will, then you can expect that your children will see some type of shift in their lifetime. I don't know what that looks like. Some of you, you know, we all think, and, and understandably, man, when's the day going to come when this country is just a big smoldering crater? You ever think that? I do. And I think if it happens, it'll be in June. <laughs> but in all seriousness, and that is serious, if we truly do believe that God's mercy is greater than sin, then we can legitimately pray by faith for revival. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's that prayer for? That is a prayer for revival, and that is a prayer for all the church. For a thousand generations of them that love me and keep my commandments. Turn me. We should be investing optimistically in true worship. And, and you should, if you can, have children and raise them properly. Immerse them in the worship of the church. Immerse them in an education where they're going to be immersed in worship. And immerse them in the reading of scripture and prayer and the singing of psalms and hymns in your home. And you should do it with a level of optimism. All of life flows from what? The presence of God. And where is God most manifestly present? In worship. In worship. And that would be a sign of faith. 
to say I have hope for the future, therefore I will invest in worship with your family, your friends, your church, your community. When the whole world right now is standing against you and telling you that you're just basically a throwback dinosaur who's walking off the stage because you have these beliefs, and you have the nerve to say, nope, you'll be done within three or four generations, but what we're doing will last forever. Hopeful optimism. All of life comes from true worship. Godly churches, godly children, godly society, all of it comes from true worship. Ezekiel's vision of the temple was that the water flowed from the temple and nourished the earth. And the vision that comes from Eden, God's garden paradise of worship, is that the water flowed from Eden and nourished the, word, the, the earth. And the vision that Jesus gives us is that the living waters will come from us and nourish the earth as they come from him. The worship of Christ invites his mercy. And it is the true, honorable, sincere worship of Christ that will alter human history for the good. This text, well, does have, does have a terrifying warning. Has the loveliest of promises as we seek to honor him by worshiping him in this apostate generation that is marked by high treason against God. So let us do so with joy because we believe he is a God who is manifestly present, present in his worship and it is from that type of worship that true life flows into the entire earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness in visiting us with your presence as we do seek to worship you. Forgive us for the times where we fail to properly worship you. Cover us with your mercy. And we pray that you would show mercy to us, to our children, our children's children, and our children's children's children. In Christ's name.